Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration for leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning, this is Kate Ebner, and I welcome you to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. In business, we often start the growth conversation with a discussion of constraints. I think this is fascinating, and as a result of this, we get results that are only incrementally better than where we started. This week's guest, Tim Ogilvy, reminds us that breakthrough results come from envisioning an inspiring future and asking what's missing instead of what's wrong. Tim is the CEO of Peer Insight, an innovation strategy consultancy where he has made pioneering contributions to the emerging disciplines of service innovation, customer experience design, and business model exploration. His clients include big names like AARP, Bank of America, Hallmark, Hewlett-Packard, Pfizer, P&G, and more. And his projects create organic growth by linking new customer experiences to scalable business models. Um, Tim has consulted to five governments. He's influenced innovation policy from the United States to the European Union to Taiwan. Certainly, he is an example of a visionary leader and has an extraordinary life. We're going to enjoy welcoming Tim today and talking with him about how to make your vision real. Good morning, Tim. Kate, I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you. I have uh, been reading and really studying your new book, Designing for Growth, Tim, and um, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. It's actually published by Columbia Business School, hardcover, and an absolutely user-friendly read. Um, you and your co-author, Jean Liedka, just published this book. It came out, I think, in 2011, and it's really about something you call designing for growth or design thinking. Tim, what's design thinking? Well, um, design thinking is a way to solve problems, and we already have uh, problem-solving tools that we're trained in, uh, and I'm, our, the insight that Gene and I had is that those tools are sort of reaching their, their realistic limit of, of return, if you will, and the problems that we're facing are often so complex and, and different than we faced before. Uh, there are times when we need a different tool, a new tool uh, that is able to deliver different outcomes, as you said in your introduction. A tool that can look at a future that doesn't exist, uh, start with places where there is no data, really, and, uh, and be comfortable in that ambiguity um, by exploring alternative possible futures. It's, it's, it's wonderful as a tool in that it isn't taught very many places. It isn't taught to most of us. Uh, and yet we're naturals at it because it really taps into um, some real fundamental human gifts and strengths to imagine, to 
uh, play, to uh, explore, uh, to empathize, right? So I, I found myself um, drawn to using the skill, even though I wasn't formally trained in it. That's what got me to, to collaborate with Jean and, and put our heads together to make this new book. And your background is as a strategy consultant, um, among other things, Tim. So I know from my own background as a strategy consultant that a lot of the, the approach is analytical, kind of looking at the past, analyzing the data, um, drawing conclusions about the future from the past. What I'm hearing you say is this design thinking is about envisioning the future and um, creating the future possibilities that we can't see today. Um, so your process is how to see the future without necessarily falling back on that old analytical process. Do I have it? Uh, you do have it. Uh, in, in a nutshell, our, our whole education system is geared towards those uh, analytic skills, and there's nothing wrong with them. Um, as as uh, I like to say, it's, it's not what's wrong, it's what's missing. And what's missing is, is simply the ability to... to imagine and then explore the things in our imagination using experiments that we do today. You know, um, Einstein had a, uh, was once quoted as saying that you know, we can't hope to solve today's problems using the same thinking uh, that we use to create them. Right? And so uh, in my experience, uh, I'm very well trained in the analytic skills. I'm a Six Sigma black belt. I'm a uh, process engineer. Right? Um, so I have all that training. And I think that that different level of thinking that Einstein was referring to uh, it appears to me to be uh, design thinking. That's that's what I've gotten um, great success with, at least in my practice. Why do you call it design thinking? Uh, a big part of it is that it relies on a different part of our brain. Um, it relies on the brain that <clears throat> that is more often associated with the work that designers do. And so we're not asking people to go to design school, but we're saying access that part of your brain that, that normally gets drowned out in the call for data and early proof and, uh, and so forth. Um, but it's really based on, I guess, three core steps. Empathy with the people we're trying to solve the problems for. Exploration of alternatives and then rapid iteration. Right, so think of empathy, exploration, and iteration. So we're going we're gonna to try something that we don't know the answer to before we start, unlike a lot of analytical problems. Uh, we're going to try something that isn't based on breaking things down into component parts, which is the analytic approach, but instead it's based on building things up that, that could exist. Right? It's based on, on mm-hmm. thinking about what might be. And mm-hmm. that's a, those, those skills and, and work flows are just what we associate with designers. And in fact, designers are, are really good at them, right? So they're not the only people who can do design thinking, but they're wonderful role models for business people or, 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 or um, you know, managers who aren't trained in design, but who need to create, you know, an alternative future that is, that is better than, than the one we have. Great. And I, I want to just um, kind of zoom in on the idea of empathy that you mentioned. And why is it important for us to, to, to I don't know if it's feel empathy or, or think empathically um, as we're envisioning the future or sort of creating this alternative future? Well, I think a big part of it is that we're going to try to create steps into the unknown, and we have to give up the idea that, that um, we can cal- calibrate, calculate, the future, and so if we want to guess whether someone's going to come with us into that unknown, it can't be based on their answering us in a survey. It can only be 
based on, because they can't answer about the future in a survey, right? It's just, it doesn't exist, and they have a hard time visualizing it. So mm-hmm. instead, we just have to develop our own felt sense of what is needed, what, that is, but is not articulated by people. And we don't practice that as adults very much. We practice proving it and proving it in advance. And so if you want to develop a felt sense of what might be um, and then explore it and play with it with real users, you just have to connect very deeply to, to what they're going through in ways that they can't articulate in language. Right? So we've got to get beyond language, and we call that empathy. Right? Really, really spending time with, really connecting with, really being inspired by. Yeah, another reason to, that empathy is important is it's going to be hard and we're going to fail. And what's going to get you to, to jump back up again when you fail? It's going to be an incredible passion uh, that you have to solve this problem. Right? It's not going to be I'm in love with the idea that I came up with. It, yeah, that starts, but as soon as that idea fails, you'll fall out of love. Right? But you're not going to fall out of love with the user and who, who needs a solution and for whom uh, life will obviously be much better if, if we can solve this, this uh, difficult problem. It reminds me of uh, you know, sort of the mindset is, I really want to help. Um, in other words, I'm committed to not just solving the problem, but actually creating something that's meaningful and that really addresses the most core issues that are at the center of the problem. Um, thank you for talking about that. You know, I know that uh, your philosophy is to help your clients and your collaborators discover their innate competence at these critical skills. So, you know, your premise is we can, we can all do this where we have an inner competence at actually doing this design thinking. Um, can you, can you just tell us what makes you think we really can do this and do, give us a story or some evidence that we can do this? Well, first of all, I'm a father of young boys, and so if you want to see design thinking in action, you know, give a seven-year-old, um, my seven-year-old Tristan, give him you know, uh, a stack of paper and invite him to make a paper airplane. And, of course, he's not going to talk. He's not going to think he's just going to start doing it with his hands, and uh, he's going to wad up a few and try another one and, and be happy at his successes. It's just so innate to to try different things hands-on that you don't know how they're going to come out and, and just see what happens and forgive yourself when it fails. And it's only our you know, formal education that you know, basically tries to beat the notion of constructive failure out of us and just get the right answer. You know? um, so you see it enough in, in practice in the world to know that, that it's a human part of us. I think the second reason I'm optimistic is the number of business managers I've worked with with zero design training who've gone through a guided process, I'm I'm talking hours, not even days, uh, to use design thinking and who have been successful on their first try. And, uh, you know, that made made me confident that it's not just a, you know, thoughtful um, theorem in a conference room, right, that uh, doesn't translate into the world, but that, uh, you know, the, the, the guy who's trained as a CTA um, and has an MBA can get out and visualize something with a client in low fidelity and uh, start to start to tell stories, um, you know, about about possible futures where they're not putting forward the answer. They're they're just reframing the question in front of their client and to see the client uh, totally excited to be participating in the development process of something new that's just for him. Right. So mm-hmm. seeing the first time success is is really exciting and. You know, we both know some of the things that 
some of the problems you and I are drawn to solve are really difficult ones, and we're not going to get you know, first-time success. Uh, yeah. So when you find that, that there's some, some tools that are just going to work right away, you know, fostering empathy uh, by rolling up your sleeves together with a client around some uh, images of the current state and playing with possible ways to change it is just instantaneously first-time success, you know, uh, in, in most contexts. And now you've got some momentum. You know, there's a wonderful book, Tim, called The Art of Possibility. Maybe you've read this. It's by Benjamin and Rosamund, uh, Benjamin Zander and his, and his wife. And, and they write about um, the art of possibility really being about um, a number of lessons that they have learned in the course of their work. She's a therapist and he is a conductor. Mm-hmm. And they have a chapter called Give Yourself an A. And <laughs> In this chapter, what what um, Xander writes about is being in front of young musicians and noticing how anxious they were and how much they were striving for perfection and really trying not to make mistakes and how limiting that was. So, he had everybody in the orchestra write a letter as, give, telling him why they why they got the A he was going to give every single one of them. And he said, you know, imagine it's the end of the end of the year, you've been in this program all year, what did you do to earn your A? And so, they all wrote this letter to themselves, basically articulating um, why they earned the A, and he collected them all. Every, he, his policy from that point forward was, everyone here has an A, because yeah. he wanted to free us, right, from right. our urge to try to get it right, to try to be perfect, to try to not make mistakes, because he wanted something splendid and organic and creative, and, and um, what you're talking about with your, your process with your clients, I think that requires us to sit down together as ourselves, willing to bring our best and not be as hung up on, on perfect and excellent and, um, you know, uh, everybody demonstrating their competence as we sometimes can be. Right, right. Well, it's, you know, one reason why my co-author is so inspirational, she's trained as a classic strategist, you know, went to Harvard Business School, uh, teaches strategy at, at the Darden School, and uh, she just got... Uh, discouraged that the whole strategic planning process, which was about you know, analytics to, to figure out the future before your competitor did, was you know, simply not realistic in, in, with the rate of change in markets in the world. It just wasn't responsive to what managers needed. And uh, so Jean followed her intuition that said, you know, maybe the design process is a way into strategy. And wrote a really seminal article called uh, uh, Design as Strategy, and, you know, I think it takes real guts in, in a, cl- a classically defined academic discipline like strategy to, to zig left and, you know, go into design and figure out a way to, to use uh, unknown, unknowns as the basis for, for something as concrete and, you know, smartest guy in the room oriented as, as business strategy. Uh, I, I think I, made, uh, I came to this from entrepreneurship, you know, starting uh, a couple of small businesses, software-oriented businesses, and, you know, being venture-backed and trying to get out and explore where things didn't exist, but with none of the vocabulary, just as Gene did, none of the vocabulary in our book was available to us. Wow. Uh, but wow. we found that that we're going to have to explore. We're we're too frustrated with the the tools. The that old are presented, way, right? They're not they're not responsive to the problems we're interested in in solving. There must be another way. And so I think we basically use design thinking uh, intuitively to find our way to design thinking. Right? As wow. A, as much Tim, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we, I want to hear more about um, these four amazing questions that formed the design thinking process. We'll be right back. We're 
always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccianello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email... Please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. My guest today is Tim Ogilvie, CEO of Peer Insight and co-author of Designing for Growth. We're talking about uh, Tim's process for making your vision real. He calls it Designing for Growth. And Tim, before the break, we were talking about sort of how you got in, how you sort, how you and your co-author um, Jean Liedka backed into design thinking? I'd love you to tell us about the four questions that the design thinking model is really based on. You articulate these beautifully and clearly in your book. Go ahead, tell us what they are. Yes, the four questions are all based on what's what is, what if, what wows, and what works. What is obviously is just looking at the current. Uh, situation, the, the the problem, the behaviors, and so forth. What if is the next you know question two gets at, hey, can we imagine some alternative futures that are that are superior um, to this one? Uh, so that's you know brainstorming and and concept development. What wows is is a key step. The third one where we go out to see the users and show them our ideas in in very low fidelity, very quick. Turn around the next day, ideally, and see what they go. Wow, how soon could you build that? Uh, and then what works is getting in the field to do what we often refer to as a, a learning launch, right? Getting putting together a, a proximate version of the experience so that people can can really experience it uh, as an operating uh, uh, process and and really learn what what can what we can build. All right. So these four questions are often done in, in you know, a small project in a week, in a complex project in 100 days, um, but they really need to sequence uh, together. And uh, it's a very repeatable uh, process that we've used, as I say, in you know, the course of a day or the course of 100 days. It could scale to, to either timeline. What is, what if, what wows, and what works? So those are the four questions. Um, 
you know, I, I'm interested in this, in each one. I mean, number one question, what is, um, what does this really mean? And why do you start with that? Well, you know, often in innovation and growth, we want to go right to what if. And um, before we do that, we just need to be really grounded in the unmet needs of real people. If we go right to what if, we often start working on what we want for our organization or for ourselves, and we gloss over and we make many assumptions about what real users want, and we're not going to have a success, uh, a successful outcome if we ignore what users want, right? Um, but I think beyond that, we really need to connect with users to build that empathy, to, to have enough passion, uh, enough inspiration to press through when inevitably we, you know, we hit a failure. Um, there's a you know, classic case example of design thinking uh, came from uh, a colleague of mine, a uh, friend I know, Eve Bihar, who led a project called the $100 Laptop. And this was funded by MIT, and you think how ridiculous a goal is a $100 laptop, but the design process actually really loves a tight constraint like that. And so what is was easy, right? That laptops cost upwards of $900, and it was targeted toward uh, healthcare and education in Africa, right? It's an enormous problem. And Eve uh, led a team uh, with the backing of the MIT Media Lab and made amazing progress, but uh, it still got to about $180 uh, per laptop. All right. Um, then along comes Lucky uh, Gunasakara, and he's a Stanford um, medical student, uh, and he's Sri Lankan. And as he traveled back to, to his home country, he would personally feed um, children who would be um, some of the multiple amputees from the Civil War in Sri Lanka. And he understood the healthcare challenges in his home country and throughout Africa. And uh, he came up with this insight that, you know, the laptop isn't here yet. Uh, but everybody has a cell phone, and these cost about $30. Uh, and so he built a network of clinics that supported um, community health workers with uh, information about, about demand, information about uh, supplies of medical services, a hub-and-spoke model as to who was seen and who was waiting to be seen and how to route the, the community health workers. And within a year, uh, they had 10 countries and about 3 million patients using his network of $35 cell phones, uh, right? So this is an incredible contribution to health outcomes in a very poor country. And part of it was he really understood, you know, what is. What is is there's this problem, and, and yet there's this ubiquitous asset called cell phone that everybody seems to have access to, right? As opposed to inventing something that doesn't yet exist. These are both great projects that are going to make a real contribution, but you just see that the incredible grounding in a passion to find an answer from someone who's really lived it you know, it really has a felt sense of what the of what the challenge is, and has really looked around to see what is. Hey, we all have cell phones. Maybe we can use these as the as the hub, and there really are little computers, right? Those are great examples. I mean, those are those are excellent examples. And I'm I, I want to pick up on something you said a minute ago about um, design loves a constraint. You know, right. so as we're thinking, as we're creating something for the future, a lot of times people feel. Um, inhibited, you know, I don't have the resources, I don't have the, um, I don't know how to do it, you know, I'm not sure I have all of what I need to make this idea happen. Um, can you say more about how a constraint actually helps? Well, you know, the constraint is actually a gift, and this is why designers have so much to teach us, that, that the business people who aren't trained in, in innovation and growth, 
except through analytical tools, often think that the, the key is to, you know, it's blue sky. Let me get a clean sheet of paper. Imagine if anything were possible. And the fact is it's very difficult to connect the blue sky concepts back to something that we can deploy, right? Um, and so instead, if we really ground ourselves in, in the constraints and embrace them, um, we ha- you have a chance to come up with some, uh, you know, a, a really interesting insight that the handset costs $30 and is actually a computer, right? It can, it can do a lot of the things that we're looking for, right? So I think uh, we found that, that designers really get that, people who are trained in design, and that business people can learn to, to embrace the constraints. You know, part of the, the value of constraints is obviously we're going to have to marry, you know, what's desirable to what's technically possible, and it's that iterative dance between the two that, you know, sometimes leads to these real breakthrough um, insights, right? The, the the idea we often fail as business people at innovation because we we we're going for the you know what's the idea? Well, give me the big idea. And you know, the reality that that uh, Dr. Guna Kassara found was, hey, guess what? The the it's really the need is what's driving this, and we'll find the idea, right? The the idea will come in the right time. Let's really understand you know what the need is, what the behaviors are. And let's don't fall in love with the idea of a $100 laptop or whatever else. Let's be in love with the user uh, and his or her problem, and then the idea will, will play its role when the time comes. So you so really want to guide people to emphasize the, um, I, I don't know what the right word is, the outcome that they're trying to create for the user versus a particular sort of pet idea or concept or product that they they have in their mind is the answer. Uh, it, that's it. I mean, yeah. we get so distracted by by uh, by big ideas, and it, you know, it's only human to want a silver bullet or something like that, right? Um, the the Buddhists have a saying. They say, <clears throat> you know, no mud, no lotus, right? The lotus is this beautiful flower, but it comes out of uh, all this decay, uh, all of this, all, all, all these preceding things that have had their moment in the sun and have died and created, you know, the mud and the, and the rain and so forth. And, you know, the, we just have to really be comfortable that a lot of uh, the efforts we're going to try um, are not going to be the lotus. They're going to be the mud. <laughs> and that, that's, that's part of the design process. And that's one reason I love to understand how designers are, are trained, to, to try low-fidelity prototypes and throw them away just like my seven-year-old makes a, a paper airplane that's, Un- infeasible and unrealistic and doesn't go two feet and wads it up and doesn't think twice about it, right? They're cultivating that attitude towards uh, experiments that fail as a stepping stone to figure out what works mm-hmm. is kind of antithetical to our habits of being the best student in class and, you know, only raising your hand to give the right answer, right? Never raising your hand to explore the bit that you don't understand because it'll show you as not the, not the smartest kid in the class. Yeah, it's reminding me of uh, last week's guest was Ross Martin of MTV Scratch, who talked about the people on his team, he said, need to just check their egos at the door. You know, we want to create um, wildly innovative things, and we it's not about um, who's the smartest, brightest, best idea. You know, it's really about letting go of all of that mm-hmm. and just seeing what, what, what works. It sounds very similar. Yeah, it's true. Well, we use an, an acronym uh, called LOVE. You really have to love users, and we, we, we spell it L-O-V, and it's, it stands for let others validate, right? And so there's uh-huh. a, you know, if, if we love our idea, then we're not going to let others validate, <laughs> right? We're going we're gonna to validate it ourselves, and we'll, oh. be, we'll be wrong, right? If we love the user, 
and we let others validate, and then they say, why don't they like this idea? It's so good. For so many ways, they don't see it. You know what? They don't see it. They don't see it. And there's nothing, nothing we can do except love them and say they see the way they see. We have to find a way to reach them in a way that, that's meaningful um, to them. You know, one of the projects I worked on uh, several years ago for a healthcare company was around smoking cessation. And these smokers, they, they targeted uh, smokers aged 25 to 35 um, that had made several attempts to quit and been unsuccessful. And they just weren't responding to the obvious mm-hmm. fact that they had a chemical addiction. And they were getting these messages about, um, you know, smoking is gross, it's going to kill you, uh, it's costing you a lot of money, this habit, and images of doctors and things like this were, you know, meaningful to them. And, and what we found by talking to real smokers and, and observing their behaviors in, in this age group was that they did not construct their habit as, as a chemical addiction. It was mm. irrelevant. That was not resonating with them. What they saw was a lifestyle choice, and they believed that they were going to make a different choice at, a, at, a, at, a, at some time in the future. And so just appreciating that, that you and I might look at that and say, well, that's delusional. They're chemically addicted. Right? They've tried three times to quit, uh, and being angry is not the path to solving their problem. Right? The path to solving the problem for this young smoker is to say uh, her reality is she's, she's making a lifestyle choice, and where does she go when she wants to make a new choice in some other area? Right? They go to mm-hmm. a coach, they go to a, uh, they get talk therapy, they get, they build a support group, they you think about, uh, you know, Weight Watchers. Start, and so, so we constructed a service that was, there were no medical, you know, imagery, no threats of a distant, horrific future. It was all about the positive uh, results that a coach can bring into your life once you, once you have the, you know, ready to make a new choice. And a very successful service that included, you know, phone-based uh, coaching, uh, um, uh, network community on your again the handset, right? The ubiquitous handset messages for your friends who were all involved in your in your quit attempt, and mm-hmm. right the um, a pharmaceutical product that that was a nicotine uh, substitute, right? Uh, so you had a whole suite of solutions to help them have a success on this you know, on their attempt where they had failed three or four times before. Fantastic. So you took, a, you took a whole different approach in order to meet them where they were, in effect. My guest today is Tim Ogilvie, CEO of Peer Insight. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to learn more about making your vision real. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Tune in to Tom Says for practical solutions that you can use in your life. Whether it's information you can use for business, spiritual awareness, health, or personal issues, you'll want to listen to this life-changing program hosted by Tom Gerbic. Tom will also invite you to participate by calling in or sending emails. There's no topic that's taboo. With Tom's life experiences, you'll find that a weekly visit can be truly inspiring. Tom Says can be heard on the Voice America Variety Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern with a weekly rebroadcast on the Voice America Business Channel. Did you know that the number one concern of American business is the ability to attract and retain qualified workers? Yet millions of qualified American workers with disabilities are sitting on the sidelines. Disabilities at Work Radio focuses on businesses and their workforce needs and also offers other topics of interest to people with disabilities, their families, and supporters. 
Join Disabilities at Work Radio every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you for joining us today. This is Kate Ebner, and you can download this show and any others onto your iPod and listen anytime. If you'd like to be eligible for a free book, we're going to be giving away a copy of Tim's book, Designing for Growth. Um, Just email us a question. Sign up for our e-news at nebocompany.com. I'm here with Tim Ogilvie, and we're talking about making your vision real. And we're, we're exploring the four key questions of the design thinking process. And those questions are, what is, what if what wows, and what works. So I'd love to dive into the second question, what if. Uh, what happens when business leaders ask this question? Uh, well, so the beauty of this question really is if, we've, if we're tied very much to the, to the constraints and the realities of what is, um, then we'll be playing with, with multiple possible uh, changes to it uh, and, and being very careful not to fall in love with a single version of it, but to create alternatives that we can test with users. Um, so there's an, an innovation leader I admire, uh, Scott Williams, formerly the chief creative officer at Starwood. And one of Scott's projects was uh, to re-envision the lobby experience at the Sheraton. And so they got very grounded in, in observing behaviors in lobbies. And one of the things they saw was that uh, this, this really interesting insight that people uh, want to be alone together. That's part of what happens in a in a hotel lobby. Is that people really like their privacy, but they want to be in a collective uh, environment and feel that they're part of some energy that's happening. And so they brainstormed sixty different experience elements in the Sheraton lobby to reinvent the experience to make it, you know, a really inviting place to be alone together. Uh, and ultimately, they they prototyped sixty all sixty elements, and they ended up implementing. 11 of them that really, you know, survived and were embraced by, by users. And so I just really love the, the ratio, right, to go from 60 little elements that you try out from a popcorn cart that rolls around. It's almost like you're at an event to a, to a living wall of, of plants and, and water as you come out of the outdoors and into the indoors, this sort of purifying thing of I'm leaving the, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles, and I'm entering a sanctuary Right to a, a reading chair that you sit in that has uh, storage for uh, for books underneath that you can you know grab different um, books and try you know explore them for ten or fifteen minutes while you're waiting to meet a friend. All these elements that that they actually prototyped, uh, uh, but of which only eleven you know made the cut to become part of the new Sheraton lobby. So I think it really shows the the in the what if the the breadth of what you could can try and the 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 right step through to what wows right. What is it that that Customers and guests are really connected to, and Scott's team did a really great job of, of you know, being broad in, in what if and then, and then narrowing down uh, to the 11 things that created a real wow experience in the lobby. That's a great example, and, you know, I love the numbers on that, 60 ideas, 11 
finalists, if you will, you know, letting right. go of, you know, 49 ideas, but having right. 11 really great ones. Yeah, um, yeah back to the comment, uh, you know, about the, the mud and the lotus, those 49 elements, that's the mud, right? Yeah. And, the, the 11, <laughs> and Scott's totally philosophical that uh, as long as you could test them quickly in low fidelity and not spend a bunch of money, let's try it out. Right? Hey, it's one lobby. It's, you know, how hard is it to mock up a, um, uh, uh, to, you know, prototype a cart that has, you know, popcorn uh, mm. being, being made yeah. fresh in front of you, right? You can do it. Did the popcorn stay in the final? It didn't. You know, what they found was um, aroma is a very important test that a guest goes through when they enter a place, and the popcorn was lovely for the few people who liked it, and it stayed around forever for those who didn't, right? And uh-huh. so the idea of turning it into a, um, to a stadium uh, just didn't work for the people who, you know, who weren't the popcorn uh, enjoyers. And so there you go. That's what you learn by, uh, you don't learn that from a survey, right? You've got to learn it by trying and having other people go, oh, I don't really like the popcorn smell in the lobby, right? <laughs> and, and how did, has that affected their business? Can you, can you tell us sort of like what, what happened oh, I mean, next? It, it was, yes, you can. And on the other hand, uh, it's awfully hard to separate from you know, the other things going on at the same time, you know, renovating uh, rooms to have, you know, heavenly bed, for example. And so, um, you know, just really believing in the overall experience is, is a big part of the measure. But uh, they did uh, measure, uh, if you will, lobby time versus room time, which uh, went up by 15% as room time went down by 15%. Mm. And uh, the lobby is a good place for people to be if it's inviting. And uh, so they saw the behavior uh, change and they saw their uh, you know occupancy and, and market share uh, do better, um, but uh, you know pegging it to the to the, the one of the eleven things they implemented is a you know a bit trickier process. Well, that's 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 interesting. It's kind of helpful to hear that that follow on piece, and uh, you know it occurs to me yet again that. Um, there's something light about this. You know, when you're in the process you're describing, this design thinking process, you're, you're throwing things out there, you're trying things, uh, you know, you're not betting everything on one horse, or, you know, there's, not the, the, there's this feeling of experimentation and perhaps lightness that um, I find is often missing when people are trying to develop a big idea. It's so true that, you know, I have a real aversion to bet the company, and um, my background before starting this consulting business was, was as, a, as a startup CEO for a software company. Well, you don't have a company, you, therefore you, you have to bet it, <laughs> to, that it's going to create something. But um, rapid experimentation with multiple somethings was how we spent the first four months. And so mm. I think even in a startup environment, placing small bets fast is the is the crux of design thinking. And it's so, what analytic thinking wants us to do is to figure out the answer first, and in our desperate hope to, to prove the answer, we end up placing large bets slowly, which is just disastrous. Um, the, you know, the size of the write-offs, the, the risk to your career, to your company's brand, to place large bets slowly is, um, you know, that's reason enough to adopt design thinking. <laughs> Is because the alternative uh, just has too much risk uh, associated with it, right? We think we, we think it's risky to to create a low fidelity prototype and put it in front of a of a customer. And how much more risky is it to show them a beautifully buttoned up experience in a fifty page PowerPoint and a twenty five thousand dollars piece of software that he really doesn't want? And he's going to say nice things to you because he you know he respects you and figures you oh, you must have thought this through, but then then the, the customer doesn't buy it, and you end up having a big write-off. And you may have looked smart 
at the moment in front of the customer because you had a you know buttoned up fifty page PowerPoint and you felt more confident in the meeting, but you ended up um, building something that nobody that nobody bought. Right, and so it's just as I say. I think what we find is when people try it on uh, their first experience, they say, "Wow, I'll do it that way every time." You know, for now, yeah. I didn't I didn't know that this opportunity existed to to prototype this experience at one lobby in low fidelity and get feedback and decide that's going to make the cut and be in the final eleven, or now nah, that's you know going to distract too many of the other customers who don't like the 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 sense that they've entered a stadium when they come into the Sheraton lobby. Well, it's and you know it sounds like more fun. It also sounds to me like the customer actually gets to co-create versus the consultant having all the answers or the product developer having all the answers, and yeah, that or the that's always better. It's true, and uh, but it, I have to tell you, it wasn't natural for me, um, Kate, because I'm uh, you know I'm trained as an analytical person, and I'm uh, self admittedly a bit of a control freak, and that you just can't do that. You just can't put your customer in charge of of the answer and also, you know, embrace your inner, um, control freak. And so, uh, it took me that, so that took, um, you know, a couple of tries to say, Oh, I'm going to have to let other people into this process. And, and I'm going to have to give up that I'm the person who knows the answer. My leadership can't, can no longer be based on, I'm the guy who knows the answer, right? Because hmm. if I'm doing something really complex and valuable. I just had to accept, I don't know. And Is that- uh, so that was some new skills for me for sure. Is that when you became a Buddhist, Tim? Uh, no, you know, actually, that's when I became a collaborator. <laughs> oh. So it was way ahead of, uh, of studying Buddhism that um, I opened up my process to one smart guy, Carter Griffin, uh, who just was trained differently from me, thought differently from me. And I tell you, I, I didn't love it in the first two months because it, it slowed me down. Right? Everything I used to be able to do quickly, I now had to do slowly. Um, but, of course, within two months, what I found was uh, the customers liked the answers a lot better if the answers were, were more robust, more relevant to them. And, and, the, 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 it was, and Carter couldn't have done that on his own either, right? It was the, it was the open collaboration and the both not knowing but trying what both of our skills could bring together. And so, of course, once you get a little momentum like that, that's a, uh, really opened my eyes that, that uh, I'm not an innate collaborator. I, I, I like to figure it out on my own, but I'm now a learned – it's a learned skill – uh, and an absolutely crucial one for design thinking. Well, we have just a couple minutes before our next break, but I want to tackle what wows. I love this question. Um, it's a moment of truth question where we say, okay, of these 60 ideas, which one's wow? Um, kind of forces us to let go and also to embrace uh, what it is that people really want. So could you tell us uh, what's what wows story? Yep, you know, um, First of all, I really love your appreciation of the question, right? It's, it's what wows the customer is what wows, right, as opposed to, you know, what wows us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, letting others validate is the core of it. Um, and I was working early in this uh, uh, profession, I think it was 2004 or five. Um, I was working with Ryan Armbruster at the Mayo Clinic, and they were working on uh, a problem in the clinic called physician login, and it was every, every year they surveyed their physicians at the clinic, and every year in the top three dissatisfiers was the time it takes to log in in an exam room to see a patient on the computer system, right? And they kept trying to um, cut the problem down, uh, cut the login time down from, you know, two minutes and 20 seconds, as, you know, and they would get 30 seconds off the login time by, you know, writing new algorithms. And the physicians perceived the problem the same as they had before, 
And so Ryan and his group uh, tried some different approaches. And what they did is they observed the, they observed the workflow. Right? They had the physician and a patient come into an exam room uh, with Ryan's team observing. And what they noticed was this incredible, awkward um, body posture of both parties in the room during this login process, right? That the physician comes in and he's seen Kate Ebner, who's come a long way uh, who, to get a second opinion, right, about something serious. And instead of the physician making a connection with Kate, he's got to turn his back on her and, and start typing in to a computer. And the, the body language was really palpable by everybody on the team. So one of the things they prototyped, you know, with just, just sketches, right, was outside of the exam room, a place where the physician would put his finger on a on a pad that would read his fingerprint, and he would he would walk in and say hello to Kate and start communicating with his patient uh, while the lock-in was happening in the background. And in that mm-hmm. change of workflow, uh, these physicians said, "Wow, <laughs> all right, this is what I want." They didn't care if it was a four-minute login, right? Mm-hmm. What they wanted actually was to connect with their patient on a very human level the moment they were in their presence. And once you establish that human connection and rapport. It was okay then to, to you know, pay attention to their record or their you know images from from X-ray or whatever the case may be, and that actually the physicians were saying, "I hate the login time," but what they were meaning was, "I need to form a human connection with my with my patient at the beginning of an examination." Wow. We're going to take a break, Tim. We're going to come back in a a moment. We're going to tackle the fourth question, and also we want to hear more about you. So we'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Kate, and my guest today is Tim Ogilvie, CEO of Peer Insight and co-author of Designing for Growth. We're talking about making your vision real and design thinking, and we're on the fourth out of four questions. The four questions are what is, what if, what wows, and finally, what works? Tim, this sounds like the the place where the, all the ideas come back to earth, right? What works? Tell tell uh, us about that. 
they do come back to earth, and they come more into uh, classically trained analytic managers' comfort zone, so that's nice. Um, I think the, uh, the only caution I have around the what works, you know, we sometimes refer to this as a, as a learning launch, and the emphasis in this stage is still on learning and not on, um, what should I say, finalizing, uh, tuning, right? We still have to say we're testing assumptions in this process. So I'm working on a project right now, and the, <clears throat> and the client's saying, well, we need, we need to be ready for the November pilot. And our whole team, you know, we bristle at the idea that, that in November there's going to be a pilot, right? Pilot sounds like something we're absolutely committed to, and we're just fine-tuning it. And so we say, you know, could we call this a learning lab, right, the November mm-hmm. learning lab? And so in the span of a few weeks, we've, we've shifted the language, right, which I think is just much more uh, realistic, right, that, that if, the, if the magic of, of designing for growth is to play small bets fast, uh, what are we, why are we doing it fast? It, we're doing it to learn um, faster so that we can figure out what works. So I, I think learning is the, is the key in, in what works. It's, it's really a test to organize uh, and, and explore the assumptions that are, that are still untested. So you're really, really not letting those of us who want to get it right worry about that. You're really, really forcing us to just stay in the question of what, what works in the context of learning and fine-tuning and paying attention to the audience, the customer. Is that right? It's really true. And, and uh, the hardest part for senior leadership is to ask the right questions. They want to put their hands on growth projects, but asking the questions of how big is the market and what's the pricing and are you sure, it's just premature. And the better questions are, what do the target users think about the prototype? Right? What, hmm. what kind of uh, feedback are you getting? Which uh, key assumptions uh, are you going to be able to test in the next uh, you know, learning phase? Right? Really, really getting closer to figuring out what works uh, without putting it into a, you know, a big net present value calculation. Uh, we've, we've spent a lot of energy uh, teaching executives at uh, firms how to shift the types of questions they ask. We still want your time, right? but we want to focus in a way that, that um, really supports the team to be the fastest learners in your industry. Right? You know if you do that, you're going to be the fastest earners. That, take, that takes care of itself. So just focus on being the, the fastest learners as the, as the leading indicator. Wow, fascinating. I notice fun. about your four questions. The four questions all start with what. And in coaching, we in coach training at Georgetown, we teach um, people who are learning how to be leadership coaches the power of the open-ended what question. And your four questions really model that uh, the powerful open-ended possibility creating what questions. So, it's, it's, I, you know, I, I think there's a wisdom that goes even beyond design thinking in terms of using this type of question. Tim, I'd love to turn our conversation closer to home. You have created this proven process for helping clients generate innovative ideas that lead to business growth. And I'm interested in having you share with us your vision for your own business, your vision for your life. Well, like any firm, uh, it's tricky to take time and focus on yourselves when you're in a service business. Um, but, um, you know, it's, at some point we've looked in the mirror and realized that uh, if we really espouse these things to our clients, we should embrace them ourselves. And uh, at this point, uh, seven years into our, in our firm's life, we've really adopted the disciplines that are in the book. Um, we really embrace our intuition. We make time every week to uh, talk about weak signals that, we're, that we think we're hearing in our marketplace and play with them, right? We visualize and prototype everything, and we're 
the structure of the firm is as a living petri dish, right? We want to try something. Uh, we figure out a way to to try it, and we try it transparently, right? Somebody's in charge of it, and they have some resources and uh, uh, some time uh, to work with, and and then we all sort of get to watch and influence um, what we're what we're learning from it. So, um, from that standpoint, it's it's uh, I think really a, a relief that uh, I never set out to write a book, right? Like most people, you end up. Uh, and surprised by where you where you where life takes you, um, but uh, we had we had lived the book before we before we put it all in writing. It made the writing process a lot easier. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I mean I I'm aware that you you do use this process in your business, and that it's just quite a different culture, um, different different feeling than a lot of. Um, than a lot of business consultants might find in their own firms. Um, what do you like about this? Well, you know, I think it fits my personal leadership style very well. Not the style that I you know, maybe came into the world with, but the one I've evolved to, right? I've learned to collaborate. And so uh, being in a, in a growth Petri dish firm makes that really easy. I've really uh, embraced, you know, transparency about, <clears throat> about what I think is important and uh, sharing that with other people. So I think it's, it's made the firm a very joyful place where I don't personally have two sets of rules. Oh, this is my, you know, excuse me, <clears throat> this is my professional life and, you know, here's my personal life and they operate on different sets of rules from, from that standpoint. It's, mm-hmm. it's wonderfully empowering. I don't have to remember where I am, right, because I'm always uh, going to be the same. I'm also yeah, in we... a unique, this is a unique business, right? This is a professional service business, so you know, culture and human capital are the same thing. And they're by far the single greatest point of leverage in the business. And so you're just not going to be punished if you spend time thinking about culture and, and human capital. You're only going to be uh, rewarded in this type of business. I, I don't know what it might be like in a more scale-oriented um, you know, business design that's really about execution. Ours is much more about empowering people to, to be advocates and, and coaches to you know, clients in the field. And so... Um, for, for us, that's it, it, it's you know the things that we are drawn to do are also the things that we end up being uh, rewarded for in the market. Tim, our listeners out there might be interested in getting started with this design thinking process. You know, we have only a, another couple of minutes, but can you just give some thoughts about where's a good starting point? You know, the book actually has some exercises at the end of each chapter. We call it "Try This at Home," and and that was a good discipline for us to say, okay, how would somebody? Um, get started. Uh, you know, my advice is, you've heard me already, Kate, say don't bet the company. And so I'd say, well, don't, you know, bet your career uh, on design thinking. Pick something manageable, right? Even pick something in your, in your personal life. I piloted some of the methods at home by saying, well, how do we plan our family vacations, right? So pick something like that and say, what if I open that up to the design thinking process instead of the mm-hmm. uh, habitual process, what would that look like? And, you know, so try something safe, but not something, you know, that's just purely owned by you, right? Something that is a social process, right? So involves at least one other person and go through the process of really listening, um, making empathy guesses at, at what the users of this process are not saying, brainstorming some possibilities without falling in love with one, uh, you know, prototyping them and getting feedback and just see, just see where it takes you. Right? It's, it, it's pretty fun. Uh, you'll find your natural voice uh, at it. You you might think that you know you need to be good at sketching, but you don't. Really humble sketches and stories work. You know work fine. 
Uh, and my kids, uh, we do this uh, with my 10- and 7-year-old boys, and uh, one of our uh, processes for, that they came up with, the solution for you know, how to defuse a, um, a conflict is to, to play with the yellow and red cards that you, get in, that you see in soccer. Right, to say, oh, this is starting to escalate a little bit. Let me show, let me get a yellow card out. Right, and mm. so it's kind of a mm. funny way to defuse the uh, for somebody to say, hey, I'm starting to feel really threatened by by the way this game is going, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that yes. this, is a, this is a shorthand communication where I can't I can't form words because I'm only seven, but I can say, okay, this is a yellow card moment for me. Right, so outstanding. Then, great really example. Surprised. Yep. Well, I want you know as as you're as you're talking about that, you know, I love the idea that this is instead of saying don't try this at home, which is what we sometimes hear when we're right. watching television. Um, you're saying try this at home, and it sounds like your book is a great resource for people to learn how to do this and begin this experimentation. Tim, I want to say thank you for joining us today. I've been talking with Tim Ogilvy, uh, author of Designing for Growth, a Design tool- Thinking Toolkit for Managers, and we'll be giving a copy away of this beautiful book to listeners who email us at visionaryleader at nebocompany.com or if you sign up for our e-newsletter by the same name this week. Um, Join us next week for more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life and have a great week. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.